Welcome to the next episode of the Digital Village Podcast, the show that tackles the tech trends impacting business, economy, and the planet. In today's episode, we welcome Katrina Dow, CEO and founder of Miko, as we explore the issues surrounding data monetization. So sit back and enjoy. Well, hello, and welcome back to the Digital Village Show, a podcast that stalks interesting people in the tech sector and then holds them hostage until they've explained to us what they're doing to save the planet. Hi, Jace. How are you doing? Hey, Paul. Good to see you again. Nice to be back in the room with you, mate. Already been uh, sooner than expected, actually, but I'm excited by that. I'm glad to hear it. Good, good. Anyway, our guest today has willingly agreed to come and talk to us (laughs) before she returns to Europe at the weekend. She's here for Australia's um, Blockchain Week, which has been uh, an event over six cities, over 200 speakers, um, covering the topic of blockchain and everything uh, good and bad about it. If you're the slightest bit interested or concerned about the controls um, that, that are in place and the monetization that there is of data going on, you'll need to listen to the next 40 minutes. Our guest is one of the world's leading advocates for giving people and organizations the tools to access and control and create mutual value from personal data. The company she founded in 2012 is building a personal data marketplace of equals. Prior to this, she had an extensive career traveling the world as a strategy consultant, and after a stint exploring commercialization models for personal data sets, she seed-funded Miko, which was launched um, in July 2014, or launched its first public platform in July 2014. So she's splitting her time between Australia and Europe, where she's got a development team. She's also actively involved in Data Sovereignty Now as a founding member, and My Data Global, which I know she's going to go on to talk about later. Welcome, Katrina Dow. Lovely to have you here. Very excited to have you as our guest today. Thank you. What an introduction. I feel very honoured. Well, you're an extraordinary person. And um, how's your week been? How's this um, blockchain week been for you? It's been fantastic. It's been wonderful to, first of all, be seeing people. How nice that we're all having these three-dimensional human experiences. That's pretty good. Uh, It's been wonderful to see some of the people that are here from different parts of the world, um, from HBAR Foundation and Adara, so we'll talk a little bit about that. We will. Um, But mostly it's been wonderful to see uh, our team here in Australia. So having been away for a while, that's been a big highlight. The highlight of the week, or has there been anything else that you'd like to share with us? Uh, I think... The, I mean, there are many highlights over, but we've got uh, a couple of announcements that Good. we will make this week. So, is now the time to I do like that? I feel like it was a loaded question. Anyway. <laughs> I was going to say, I well, feel like that was I like think, early and often. Yes. <laughs> I think to, to keep to keep our audience online, <laughs> I'd very much like to anyway. hold back okay, on the announcements. Okay, that's exactly what I was thinking. Un- until we get uh, but, somewhere but towards the end. But one highlight was uh, a dinner earlier this week. That yes. was a big highlight. Yeah. The, the dinner uh, hosted by um, the HPAR Foundation and the ability to sit with like-minded people. I mean, it was at Cafe Sydney. It was a beautiful evening. Was. The Opera House, the Harbour Bridge, beautiful food, beautiful company, um, 
great community. Yes. Everyone talking about the possibilities for the future. So I would have to say that was absolutely a highlight it, it this was. week. It was. And we were very yeah. privileged, Jason and I, to be there as well. And, and I t took away the same thing. The energy in the room, the excitement about what's happening yeah. in the blockchain community right now. It really genuinely felt like we're getting some momentum going. And I think a big shout out to Rob Allen for pulling us all yeah. together and making that happen so quickly. Yes. Yeah, yes. it was Thank a really Rob. wonderful evening. Absolutely, it's it some was. significant change that people are bringing in. This. The people at that dinner it was very interesting to um, to hear what everyone was doing and how they're applying this technology. And there's some some really serious change going on quite quickly. So it's really interesting to see to speak to everyone like that. And yeah. I think maybe that's the highlight overall of this week is to see the acceleration, but also the diversity of different drivers yeah. um, and everything from startup sustainability world right through to enterprise yeah. and everything and in everything between. And everything in between. Yeah? Yeah. 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 So. so I want to take you back to yes. 2017 when you wrote an article that was, had the extraordinary title of Shakespeare's Blockchain. That got my attention mm. straight away. And at the front of the article, you actually put a quote from Hamlet. And I'll just read this out. This above all, to thine own self be true, and it must follow as the night the day, thou canst not be, thou, sorry, I got it wrong there, thou canst not then be false to any man. So, why Shakespeare and why that quote? Well, why Shakespeare? Um, how many episodes in this uh, series? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's all there. And if, and if you read that post, and first of all, thank you for reminding me about that because uh, I'd, I'd completely, well, not forgotten about it, but I reread it today thinking about um, our discussion and I realised at the time, um, you know, it was the end of 2016, early 2017, which in blockchain years, which I guess are more like dog years, you know, that's a <laughs> long time ago. Yeah. And there was so much happening. And the point of Shakespeare, I think for me, is, is everything is in Shakespeare. You know, love, war, tax, accounting, murder, you know, everything is there, the human condition. Yes. And I hope you're not going to tell us that there's murder in blockchain. <laughs> <laughs> no, okay. And I think at the time, uh, it was a combination of being really, really excited about what was happening, um, but also some concerns that if we think that we will fix the human condition with technology, then, then it's really naive. And so were we thinking enough around the things that blockchain distributed ledger were, were uniquely designed for, bringing transparency, breaking down barriers. Um, I think it is really a, a, a tectonic kind of social shift and I, and I personally think it's the precursor to an evolution of our monetary system and, and our democracy and the way that our society is evolving, but it was still relatively early days and, yep. and there were things that weren't going according to plan. And so the whole idea of writing that blog post was to say, this is great, but if we aren't learning either from history or Shakespeare or, or if we're not looking at some of the pitfalls, um, 
if we don't design those corrections in, then we're going to inherit mm. some problems down the road. And what do you think has happened in the last five years? Have, have any of the things that you were concerned about then happened? Uh, I think both. I mean, look, I, when I wrote that post, it was off the back of the, the first big public um, DAO, the... the, the, the um, uh, the offering that I think was, I don't know, maybe at the end of 20, was at the end of 2016. And again, what prompted writing that was that there was a code of ethics for all the developers that were working on that. And, and right. that, that raised 150 million USD, you know, and it happened kind of almost overnight. And there was a really clear code of ethics. Um, there was a clear set of principles for developers working together collaboratively. There were some rules around security. Um, but as in any structure that requires governance, those ethics and those codes of ways of working were not coded into the code, right? Yeah. So the human condition says, you come along, you spot a vulnerability, and what happened? 50 million USD drained out of the fund overnight. Wow. And, and so I guess that was the first really big reckoning um, where you had Ethereum you know, stepping back and originally there was a recommendation for a soft fork, let's, let's work out what we will do to resolve this, which ended up being the, the hard fork. Um, but it was, it was a reminder that we had training wheels on with real money and real yeah. lives, yeah? So... Learning as they went. Absolutely. Really. And Nobody if you, had a rule book. Exactly. And, and yeah. the other thing too is, you know, a lot of very young people without... Um, you no know, without a lot of life experience, <laughs> exactly. And I, I mean, with, with no disrespect, but again, back to the Shakespeare idea, you know, you're around for, for, for time and, and you experience a lot of things in life that you learn from. Mm. But if you're in your early 20s and everything just looks like it's code, um, yeah, it's a, it's a completely different way of understanding the consequences, yeah? And I think the thing we learnt out of that was governance. And if you want something to be coded, if you want rules and you want things to operate in a certain way, then you have to, you have to lay them down as code. But you have to understand what those things are in order to lay them down. Sure. So before that, um, you got uh, Miko off the ground in 2012 yeah. um, and launched the platform in 20. 14. So, so what were your goals when you started that? And I'm asking this question in the context of the, the title of our podcast here, which is My Data, My Rules. Yeah. So did you at that time have a desire to see some kind of change in the, in the sort of power struggle between personal and corporate data? Absolutely. But I think more than that, it, it was it was that it was becoming more and more obvious that we were becoming fidgetal, and, and that, that's a word that I borrow from Martin Letts, who's the founder of, a, of um, uh, Trend Wolves in Belgium, who focuses on sort of youth trends and what is happening sort of on the edge for young people and how does that sort of make its way into mainstream. And, and, and what was really obvious was that we weren't physical, we weren't just physical, you know, and we were not completely digital. And as we were moving into this world where we have a digital twin and we were developing this kind of um, new asset base, all this data, we didn't 
actually have a way to equitably sort of um, participate. And so it wasn't like, ooh, big enterprise, bad, you know, evil. Um, you know, we the people are going to overthrow everything. It was more like, well, actually, as an evolution, what we need now are new structures to access, control and exchange data in a more equitable way. Why? Because if data flows, you're able to make better decisions. What happens if you make better decisions? Well, you have better outcomes in life, you have better financial outcomes, you have better health outcomes, you have better relationship outcomes. And it just seemed crazy that that decisioning would just be with enterprise and institution and government and you and I wouldn't have the power to make those better decisions. So, so how do you see that evolutionary process take place, <clears throat> especially with those big organisations who are, their whole business model is driven around our data? And so how do you kind of see them stepping away from that? What does that mean for them into the future? So I think the, the good news now in sort of 2022 is that we, we're starting to see organisations want to be on sort of the right side of digital history, yeah? And, and without getting into, you know, who's good, who's bad, um, you know, if you wanted to, to draw sort of a line in the middle of, of some big tech, you, know, you have kind of Facebook and Google on one side that, that stumbled across the possibilities of exploiting the yeah. code, yeah, which is no different to kind of what happened early days blockchain. It's like, wow, here is a way where you can show cat pictures and then make billions yeah. of dollars because people just love to share cat pictures. So, hey, let's do that. Um, and that model has kind of perpetuated, and I think one of the big challenges right now for a company like Facebook is that let's flip that and look at what's happened recently and let's put Apple and Microsoft in another camp. And that's not to say, um, you know, everything they do is good, but I think they have a different moral compass. When you look at um, their leadership, I, I'm sure that they, they are sitting in rooms saying, well, what side of digital history do we want to be on? And do we want to make great products for people or do we want to make people into products? And so you have that privacy move by Tim Cook recently that impacts Facebook with having the largest um, drop in terms of shareholder value in a single day, you know, and, and massive impact. I think is it 10 billion to revenue. And so I think we're fast forward to where we are today compared to when I started uh, Miko, the difference is we can start to measure now like real shareholder value in terms of if you say to a customer, you, you can choose between privacy and convenience or user experience and being surveilled, or you can have a great experience and you can choose whether or not someone tracks you, guess what? People choose not to be tracked, like, mm. hello. Um, and the fact that that has been, uh, I guess, commercially advantageous for Apple and had this impact on Facebook says that things are changing. Mm, it's a telling of the times, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. So going back to when you actually formed Beco, how much of, of that thinking was already established and how much of it have you learned since then? So combination. So, so uh, the... The inspiration for the company, I'm a mad sci-fi fan, was the film Minority Report, which I'd seen 10 years before. And it just seemed like it was such a dystopian view that if, we, if, if everything was driven by data and, and 
and we were sort of um, at the at the whim of the data lords. It seemed like it wasn't a really great human experience. So so there was that there was that I guess philosophical emotional driver to hey someone should do something about that. It never ever occurred to me that it would be me. It was just in the back of my mind like that's not a great future. When I thought that I wanted to do something different at the end of 2011. I started looking at what the World Economic Forum was saying around digital identity, the value of data. Early 2012, I wrote our manifesto, which was really around this idea of making better decisions. What if we, what if we had the ability to do that? But to validate sort of the next step, Facebook was about to do their IPO. And so I'd come from a strategy background and it was like, okay, what are the threats? What are the opportunities? So I read their IPO document and there were three or four things that jumped out in their risks. Not that they were saying, hey, market, beware. But to me, it was clear that they were concerned that people could become aware of the value of their data. There could be privacy concerns. There could be regulation. And at that time, their business model was moving from desktop to mobile, so becoming quite opaque. And that was kind of the beginning of a whole host of issues, particularly with, with young people that, are, that have now played out sort of 2012 forward, 2013 forward, to be creating um, a whole range of challenges around the health and well-being of, of young people um, because of some of those decisions, those design decisions that were made by, by, by Facebook back in 2012. So at the time it was like, what if there was a privacy security by design platform that didn't access and monetize your data, that worked within a regulatory framework and provided the infrastructure and the tools for that a more equitable way? Um, I was really too early at that point because mm. it seemed like this whole thing, like the Cambridge Analytica moment or the, or the whatever was going to happen sooner. So I think, I think we always, you know, is it we, we overestimate, underestimate, you know, how fast things happen. Um, and it was the right direction, but a lot of learning along the way. Yes, and I'm, and I'm sure at that time there wasn't the awareness that there is now about the impact of some of this. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm going to refer to Age of Surveillance Capitalism, which I know you've read as well, um, where the author, uh, Shoshana Zabouf, is it? Um, opened our minds to this narrative um, with, a, with a fantastic allegory, um, which I'll just read here. Is a, I think this is actually just a post from the, uh, from the internet, not actually in the book, but it, it really does kind of highlight the issue beautifully. Imagine you have a hammer. That's machine learning. It helps you climb a grueling mountain to reach the summit. That's machine learning's dominance of online data. On the mountaintop, you find a vast pile of nails, cheaper than any, anything previously imaginable. That's the new smart sensor tech. An unbroken vista of virgin board stretches before you as far as you can see. That's the whole dumb world. Then you learn that at any time you plant a nail in the board with your machine learning hammer, you can extract value from that formerly dumb plank. That's data monetization. What do you do? You start hammering like crazy and you never stop unless somebody makes you stop. But there's nobody up here to make you stop. 
And that was really the kind of zeitgeist of what was happening when those big tech companies, and I don't want to single anybody out, but we all know who they are, started to realize the power they had by monetizing data. So that would have happened during the time you were setting up Miko and obviously beyond. So, so tell us what, how your view of, of your potential began to change as you saw the impact these big tech companies were having. So, so I think, first of all, a lot of those decisions were made with volition, just as we talked about, you know, Tim Cook sitting down and saying, okay, we're going to, going to let iPhone users decide whether they want to be tracked or not. And we're going to give them the power to make that decision. The opposite conversations we're having as in, hey, yeah. we can do this and no one's going to stop us. Yeah, And yeah. look, the money is just pouring in. So I hope I'm alive long enough to be able to understand how that period of history is reported through the eyes of, you know, generations, you know, two or three generations ahead. Yeah. Because I think it, it reminds me of, um, of another piece that I wrote some years ago called, um, I think, Seatbelt Cigarettes and Data. And, and that was, you know, I'm dating myself here, but, you know, a child of the 60s grew up in the 70s in Australia. Um, cigarette advertising on television, cigarette mm. advertising everywhere in every sporting game. Yeah. Um, uh, I went into after-school care. The, the woman that was looking after me sent me down to the local shop to buy a packet of fags, you know, and I'm yeah. like, I was too small to even see over the counter. You know, could you imagine that now? And, yeah. and the other thing is the first car we had as, as a child had, you know, we had a car accident, which I thought at six was the most amazing thing you know the car's spinning around and we stop in front of a pub and someone comes out and gives us lemonade and it's like hey when can we do that again it was great but we didn't have seat belts and and just because you could do that with cigarettes and you didn't have seat belts I think what people think is the way things are at a certain time is the way they will be mm -hmm. and it gave me I guess maybe some premature confidence that everything that you've just described was a moment of time. Like everyone was going, hey, we yes. can do this and get away with it. But what we've seen in the automotive industry is that all of a sudden uh, the welfare of everybody meant regulation um, uh, from a health perspective, you know, from an age perspective, from an advertising perspective. So it occurred to me, if we've seen these things where the kind of public good, there's some sort of intervention for public good, that it would probably happen with data. And I think, I think when you look to the EU, it's happening faster. I mean, here in Australia, we now have the consumer data right. In California, you have CCPA. You have, you have probably more emphasis in the US around financial data and, and credit rating and people feeling that they're disadvantaged, you know, maybe by machine learning and things. Europe has taken a more citizen-centric. So we're seeing things change for the public good. So um, GDPR was a massive step in the right direction in terms of privacy and human rights. How do you see, um, I guess, regulation or those regulatory bodies 
what kind of say and control will they have in a more decentralised world? I, I think one of the big challenges for regulators full stop is that technology is moving so quickly yeah, yeah. that the regulators can't keep up. And, the, and good regulation is reached by consensus. And the trouble with that is that takes time, yeah? And, it, and, it, and it's, this, it's constantly sort of trying to find this middle position. And so that's both um, the linear aspect of time unfolding and it's also people being prepared to negotiate meanwhile back to what's happening in big tech they're just kind of like yeah. wow we're on the mountain and no one is stopping us so let's just keep going so so i think that's that's a problem i think the other thing is when you look at things like blockchain distributed ledger it comes back to that the whole purpose of of talking about shakespeare just because a new technology has emerged doesn't mean all of those things that are inherent in our behaviour have gone away, yeah? And I think, I think the big shift and maybe where regulation is starting to help, you know, we're, we're starting to see uh, countries around the world saying that they will look at a centrally backed digital currency or, or that there needs to be a more mature conversation about cryptocurrency um, or digital currency or actually you can settle um, across a border a payment in seconds without it costing a gazillion dollars, yeah? Yep. And, and that we have these layers and layers and layers of inefficiency. Um, and then who ends up paying? You know, it's, the, it's, the, it's you and I at the end of that. So I think we're, we're starting to have more mature conversations. With regulation, it creates clarity. So I think that really helps. Um, and I think going back to that 2016 post where we are today is where we're starting to see the importance of governance, yeah? And so regulation can either be carrot or stick. Um, in the EU, GDPR is a good start. Um, that will be followed by the Data Governance Act and a number of other um, pieces of regulation that are designed to try and build a more equitable digital market in Europe. But the reality is, is they're competing against China, which has a completely different approach, and the US, which is really, really um, commercially driven. So you've mm. got citizen-centric, you've got state-driven, yeah. and you've got... Corporate-driven. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And who's going to win? Yeah. And is there a need for standardisation across all of that? <clears throat> you know, I mean, I guess with new technologies, there comes a lot of new ideas, new ways of doing things, and... Um, standardising, like coming to an agreement on how everything is going to talk to one another and, and work. Um, I guess I see that as being a massive challenge. Well, particularly with, with you know, the way that Web 3.0 has been described as being set up, it, 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 doesn't, it wouldn't recognise these borders between state and public and government, I guess. I think the... the exciting and frightening thing about Web3 is it is going to be the most immersive and connected experience that we've ever known from a technological point of view ever in the history of humankind. Yeah. I think yeah? it's really hard for people to start getting their heads around, you know, if you're thinking about how um, ultimately everything can be tokenized. It's a really, it's a kind of a concept that is quite mind-blowing when you think about it. It changes our whole interaction, the way that we engage with people in the world, our whole day-to-day. -day. Yeah. Um, how far away do you actually think that, that world is? 
It depends on how old you are and who you're talking to. <laughs> because if you're a young person that's living inside Minecraft or Roblox, yeah, it's right, here today. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's there now, you know. And and I think this is one of the, the, the challenges, um, you know, and I include myself and my sort of stage of life is that, you know, you get to a certain place where you have the means or, or the experience or the, the power to be, you know, designing and shaping things. Um, and, and that's why I think the work that Martin does at Trendwolves is so important because you have to remember, okay, that's the world that you're in now that you've evolved towards, but there's a whole other world that is shaping where how um, people collaborate, work together, solve problems, uh, exchange value, you know, that is happening for a digital generation that is really, really, really different. And so it's also part of the reason why I really think we're going to have a, a big shift in our um, monetary policy and the way we create and exchange value um, because we've got generations now who have grown up or are growing up in an immersive, game-driven digital world. And you can't basically say to somebody who's 13 today in three years' time, okay, now you're an adult, give up those ways and come right. into the physical world yeah. and go back two decades, happen. yeah? It's it's the user experience, the, the collaboration, the immersive experience, the user experience, the connectedness. That will all be expected, but it'll be expected in everything. Banking, rideshare, seeing a doctor, booking an airline ticket. And so I think if we want to kind of understand what would that look like, spend a day inside Minecraft and then imagine how you build a bank. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so what does that mean between, you know, the lines of geography and country and society that we put up between cultures and everything in between, you know? Um, where the whole world is, you know, if it's, you know, using gaming as an example, um, Chris is sitting here, he's like super engaged and he, he loves his games. Um, and, and, you know, so Chris can be playing with um, someone in all different parts of the world and having a really common understanding around trade and um, working together and, all, and, and um, commerce and everything. And so if that gets applied to the real world, um, what does that mean for the kind of government structures and everything that tries to tell us who we are? Look, while we're recording this, we have this impossible to imagine horrific situation in the Ukraine happening, mm -hmm. yeah, in, in our time. And, and we don't seem to be able to stop it or, or, or the diplomacy of stopping it could be the trigger to something even worse. And, and again, this is my personal perspective, I think everything that you've just described now is that the world is getting smaller, we're becoming more connected, but in that Shakespearean way, are we ready for it yet? And what it's doing is it's kind of pushing the old way of thinking, let's put up walls, let's put up borders, let's, let's exert that control which is also sort of part of this evolutionary, you know, shift. And, and that is not to minimise just the heart-wrenching horror of what's happening right now, but it is indication that 
things are evolving and not everyone is comfortable with that. And a natural way when things are moving quickly is, is to exert control. And, you know, we see that in... We see that um, right now from a military perspective, but we see it, you know, sometimes with regulations, with trade. We see it with the fact that there's a lot of tension, you know, within society, these ideas of left and right. And I think it's an indication and technology can help solve that in some ways, but not if you don't work out some, what the, some of those underlying factors are, which, which comes back to this idea of how do we get the right data to make better decisions, and yeah? Agree on, and agree on... on yeah, that. exactly, exactly. So that's really interesting. I think um, we all feel, you know, sadness for what is happening in, in the Ukraine. It's a, it's a terrible situation. Let's hope that by the time this goes out, um, there's been some, some kind of resolution of that. Um, situation. Just bringing you back to um, to yourself, uh, Katrina, and the relationship that you've got with Hedera. I know that, that you've um, just recently uh, announced that you're getting even closer to them um, and that you've chosen Hedera as your underlying distributed ledger tech platform. Can you describe the rationale you went through for making that decision? Um, and what you expect to emerge as a result of the relationship? So, so that was a very um, it was a very considered and deliberate path for us. Um, we, we had been doing a lot of work, you know, going right back to sort of 2014, 2015 with Bitcoin, Hyperledger, Ethereum, R3 Corda. Um, we'd built some proof of concepts. We'd done some work around zero knowledge proofs. So we'd We'd looked at pros and cons, um, and we started doing some really interesting work with FPOS here in Australia uh, in 2020 um, around what became um, Connect ID, so digital identity. Yeah. And at the time, we we did our first sort of proof of concept, proof of technology with them uh, using Ethereum. And at the time, FPOS started to talk to um, Hedera Hashgraph about joining the governing council. And so Rob Allen at the time was the entrepreneur in residence at, uh, at FPOS. And he approached us after the first proof of concept and said, would we consider um, working with them on sort of a world first, a micropayments um, proof of technology? Um, but would we consider using Hashgraph um, um, the move to Hedera. And so as soon as I started to dig in with the team, it was really obvious that there were a number of things about Hedera that were really compelling. Governance, the consensus, yep. the cost, the security, the scalability. Um, at that time, we didn't have the proof point on, on carbon neutral mm -hmm. and the big uh, incentive from a sustainability point of view. Um, and that came later, but there were there were lots of reasons. And I think for us, the most compelling reason is we were doing a lot of work uh, around digital identity verified credentials. And it was becoming increasingly obvious that when people wake up in the morning, they, they don't necessarily go, hey, I want to use my identity today, or I want to prove I have a university degree. They're doing that in the context of something that's meaningful to them. Um, you know, booking a flight, enrolling in university, 
whatever it is. And so mm. what we loved about Hedera was the possibility that that stack could be extended into both payments and really exciting um, into the tokenized world, yeah, tokens. And so that was a big part of it. And um, that leads me to uh, kind of uh, the announcement. Uh, and that is that with the support of the HBAR Foundation, we're working on a new open source uh, capability, which we're calling Trustery, um, which is a way to explore visually. It's a, a way to visually explore the trust and provenance of an NFT, of a token, of a, of, of a carbon offset, um, to be able to look at that whole chain of provenance, the policies that are involved, um, and then also uh, support that with decentralised identity wallet. And um, we're also doing some really interesting things around zero knowledge proof. So we're Fantastic. very, very excited. That is awesome. Uh, we'll definitely put some something in the notes with the podcast to link people to that information. That really does sound interesting. So, uh, so what can we expect that to result yeah. in in the next year or so? Are we going to see any outcome from this? Yeah, I, I think first of all, it's open source, so we want to see more yeah. community growth. Um, I think back to the highlights of this week, that sense of people around a table with different ideas and, and how that community grows. I think one of the challenges that we have as we go from the old world to the new world is this idea of, of trust. And yep. um, it comes back to this issue of governance. And so what we are hoping um, uh, we will achieve with um, Trustery is a way of helping people understand what the tokenized world is about, this Web3 world, um, how you can trace things with some confidence, how, how you can understand the policies that, that govern um, this tokenized world. And so I, I think one thing is helping to educate, build confidence, build trust. And if you have those things as foundations, then it's another way of helping to, to scale out that change. And it's, it's definitely what the industry needs right now. I think one of the challenges that, that you've got is uh, it's quite hard for private individuals, even companies, to really engage with a lot of these things conceptually. But if you've got tools like Trustly that are going to help you visualize the, the things that you're getting involved in, you know, it suddenly becomes very, very real. And I was just going to say, I mean, if, if you look at the design, it's, it's a little bit like discovering an album cover. Yeah, right. for, and then... And then sort of, you know, flipping it open and seeing the... Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, that's, that's, probab nice that's probably a very old school <laughs> 70s vinyl explanation of the digital world. But <laughs> the, only, the only thing you need to do is to add the smell. Yeah. yeah. If, you, if you can add the smell of that first record that you yeah. open. <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's that... It's that I mean, I... I I'm harking back to those days of, you know, buying a vinyl record, yeah. taking it out of the sleeve, yeah. you know, having the lyrics and, and sort of being part of that whole creator experience. And I think that's what's so exciting about what's happening in the NFT space, what's happening in the token space is, in, and back to this idea of this immersive experience that, that young people have every day is, is how you get closer to creators, how you understand when something was created, how it was created, how it moves from from creator to um, you know to the next and and or or how you are offsetting something like carbon or 
or what you're doing, how it's contributing to you know, sustainability or some of the big challenges on the planet. And we talk about these things um, and we want to know these things are effective and the whole point of Trustery is to try and it, it, to provide that way of exploring, discovering, validating um, as a means of, of laying a foundation for that trust. Yeah, because it's, it's, it's the big thing with, um, with, with blockchain and, and NFTs and things like that because the, the average person, they'd be like, well, that's great that, you know, you can say that's completely traceable and that it's um, auditable and everything like that, but, you know, show me. Show me. Yeah, exactly. You know, show me the money. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Show me. Yeah. <laughs> so it sounds like a, um, some kind of way for an individual to actually see, um, you know, the different points along the way where the, the activity that has happened which I think is providing information that actually proves its value. Um, so that's a really exciting really So exciting I will project. use that. It's the show me tool. But look, in the physical world, you know, if, if you want to understand who owns a building or who are the directors of a company or when was a company incorporated or or what is the, who is the author of this book, or when was this book published? You know, we have all of these um, ways of tracing provenance or, or being able to trust something within a legal context in the physical world. And I think what we're seeing now is how does that move to the digital world? And then what we add to that is some cryptographic proofs of being able to show that information, um, sources of data is not tampered with, and that 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 chain of trust has not been broken to build that confidence. So again, yeah. it's, it's us physical beings moving more and more into that. Yeah, and I think that's becoming ever evident with you know, what people experience when they start searching for everything and anything. Yeah. Stuff comes up in a list, but there's no understanding of the provenance of that yeah. information. Yeah. yeah. Um, history and it's really there. just got a lot to do with the kind of uh, the skill of the SEO and the SEM world in getting something to the top of the list as to whether or not it becomes the first thing you see. But also we have this massive shift now with the possibility of deep fakes and, yeah. and you know, you're seeing things that are... that. Just you're looking at it and you're thinking, okay, I'm looking at Barack Obama right now and he's rapping and it's like, yeah. is it really is him it doing really this? Him? And it's yeah. like, I know it's not. My brain is saying it's not, but it is, but it's not. And so I think absolutely to your point, it's that it's so easy also in the digital world to alter the experience and in an immersive digital world, knowing who to trust or what to trust or how to, or, or that old adage, you know, trust but verify, it'll be okay, I'm getting this video from this source and I know I can trust this source or this is really ent entertaining what I'm seeing right now but it's highly unlikely that yeah. it's, it's not real. Yes, being able to make a, a, a valid judgment on it is becoming harder and harder. Yeah. Um, We've, we've got to draw things to a conclusion. Um, Katrina, thank you so much for coming to see us. It's been a real pleasure having you and uh, hearing the story of Miko, the work you're doing with the Hedera Group and HBAR Foundation. Um, I know you're heading back to Europe um, tomorrow, is it? Tomorrow. Tomorrow, yeah. And uh, so, so good luck with that journey and safe travels. Um, 
Is there anything that we need to know about you from your past that you want to share with us? <laughs> oh, what a question. No, like, the answer to that is no, there is nothing you need, need to that know, you but need really to know. I'm really intrigued to know. Nor do I really want to share. I know you're trying to make the end of this podcast interesting to listeners, but... <laughs> I heard a rumour, I don't know whether it's true or not, that, that you're quite clean on, keen on cleaning. Is that true? Okay, okay. So, first of all, to everyone listening, I was very young, right? Okay, first up. First up. Yep. Early, 20s, early 20s. Really early 20s. Yeah, she's 26 now. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. Travelling through Europe, no money. Uh, met some guys in Vienna, Christmas time. I was about to go back to the UK. They convinced me to stay. We had nowhere to stay. Um, what do you do? It was with an English guy and a Russian guy, and the Russian guy said, why don't we borrow yes, somebody's borrow. apartment yep. Yep. over Christmas? Um, of which I was horrified at the concept of such a thing. Anyway, to cut a very long story short that re requires a lot more context, the place was filthy. Yes, before <laughs> so, or after? Sorry? So I spent most of Christmas cleaning it as well as exploring their record collection. Um, Van Morrison. Fantastic. They had some great final uh, Fabulous Night for a Moon Dance, yeah. again, which absolutely dates me. But I, to this day, would love to have seen that family when they got back from holidays and walked in and saw their apartment absolutely squeaky <laughs> clean with everything tidied up, everything, the kids' rooms tidied up, the bathroom, the kitchen and everything, so. Yeah, and, and explaining <laughs> to the police, you know, yeah. the place has been broken into. <laughs> how, how do you know that it's been broken into? Well, we came back and it was incredibly tidy. <laughs> no, excuse me. So, so I guess the moral of the story is if you do something you're not supposed to, do good. Do good. Do good. That's a very good way. very, very good way of wrapping it up. thank you so much. Okay. to see you. Thank you so much. Come back and see us next time you're in Sydney. I would absolutely love to. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please feel free to check us out on our website, digitalvillage.network, for our past episodes. We'll be back next month on the last Wednesday of every month as we are with more great stories and guests. See you then.